Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Dan Rather, and I'm joined by the Duchess of Duluth. Hello there. Where you'll soon be. You'll be gracing Duluth with your I sure will. royal presence. <laughs> Are you watching the new uh, Crown, by the way? Not yet. Yeah. I need to get on it. You know what's fun is I watch that with Lincoln. Oh, so fun. Which is so, and I'm so into the fact that at 10 she likes it so yeah, much. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's slow. It's slow and historical, yeah. and everyone's old on it, and she loves it. It's so exciting. Yeah. Today's guest is Maria Sharapova. She is a five-time Grand Slam winning former professional tennis player, an investor, and an entrepreneur, mm. and she has a book entitled Unstoppable, My Life So Far. She's a beast. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. Like, it's fun when we have athletes on, Yeah. because we just pale in comparison yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah. Where he feels immortal around them, yes. right? Yes. Well, let's just start with the fact she arrived and we're the same size. Yeah. And I was like, oh, damn. Because one tall. of my questions was going to be, or was, and I did ask, like, the showdowns with Serena when she's a 17-year-old. Yeah. That must be so intimidating. That's what I think the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then I meet her in person. I'm like, I doubt she's intimidated by much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Powerhouse. Powerhouse. Totally enjoyed it. I hope everyone else does as well. Please enjoy Maria Sharapova. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah, easy peasy? So easy. Well, the best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. We are supported by Taco Bell. Ooh. Oh, man. We often do two recordings a day and we have this little nice lunch break that we enjoy and we're always craving something really yummy. Yes, yeah, something fresh, something high quality, something like the all new cantina chicken menu from Taco Bell, which is mm. exactly that. Mm. It's so yummy. It has slow roasted chicken, the pico, that purple cabbage, and an avocado verde salsa sauce. Oh, delicious. Outrageous. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken menu at Taco Bell now. He's an Oh my God! Did they tell you that I'm the so toilet sorry. is without a door? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see how tall you are. Oh, this is wonderful. We're like eye to eye. How could I have not read that in my research? How tall? How tall, how tall are you? Six, I'm six two. Two. There we go. Nice. You know what's crazy? I didn't even clock it when we shook hands. How no. tall you were? I guess everyone's taller than me. Kind of so get I away don't. with being super tall, but when I wear heels, it's like yeah, it's too much. It's <laughs> too much. Were you offered stuff to drink? I'm fine. We can stop at any time if you decide you want. If you want to go into the house for ten or... minutes and sit <laughs> down and relax. Go work on your roof outside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we only have like an hour left of light out. 
I hate it. Is that true? No, but kind of. Is someone going to change these rules? <laughs> Didn't we vote It's on worse this? than that. We voted yeah, and we yeah. said we don't want to have yeah. it anymore. And then they told us, oh, it starts next year. So for two years we thought it. And then we we're like, well, this is the year. I and know. then come to find out that vote was just to allow them to overturn it. Uh, then, so is it coming into effect? I don't think it ever is. I don't think that vote we did means anything. Because oh, that oh was three God. years ago that passed. I know. We've been just waiting. You're in Manhattan Beach. Yeah. Okay. So the commute for you here, miserable? Be honest. I usually like to drive, uh-huh, good but I looked at the map and I was like, there's no fucking <laughs> yeah. today. So. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> also going I like, back to- I don't remember last time I went this far, actually. Yeah. Yeah, you should plan an entire weekend out of it now well, that you're here. I planned an entire late afternoon out of it. Oh, good. So yeah, I scheduled a couple of meetings after. My friend is opening a store Ooh. tonight, so I'm just going to do the whole thing. Can we recommend that you try a fun restaurant while you're over here? Or that's I would have said yes, okay. but I don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> now now you packed it so that tight. That would have been the only thing I would have liked to do. Yeah. Yeah. Is go eat and yeah. perhaps drink. Yeah. Just have a driver. Well, oh, you fancy. Yeah. Yeah. We should have had some wine for you here. Oh no, that's fine. Do you like wine or I what's mean, your who drink? Doesn't. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> Even if you don't drink it, you do like you do. it. Yeah. I like yeah. it. Like, I, I like can't the, drink it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the experience. Mm-hmm. Right. But you have a 15-month-old, Yeah, 16? I think he's 60 now. I can't keep track. We are just speaking with Monica about how quickly it all goes. Yes. And do you feel, though, when you get to leave that house and come here that even though normally it'd be a drag, it's like a spring break? I was just saying the guilt that you feel like leaving the house as a newer mom going through my teens and my 20s and my early 30s. I was like, oh, I got this down. Yeah. I'm this tough girl. I'm going to be okay leaving my child. Oh, no. <laughs> I leave the house and I think twice about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. what's the purpose of my trip? Is it really important? Your thought perspective just completely changes. But do you find this paradox you're stuck in? I forget who just posted about this, but uh, whatever, it's well-worn. But someone I like and respect was like, when I'm at work, I feel guilty I'm not with my child. When I'm with my child, I feel guilty I'm not pursuing my work. Absolutely. Yeah. 100% you just, like, cannot true. win. No matter you can't what. win. No, it's like this balance. When was the last time we felt balanced? Yes. Yeah. It's so gendered. If I'm at work, I'm like, woo, this is great. And then I'm like, being a dad, I'm like, I'm a great dad. Right. I don't, <laughs> there's no yeah. point. No, don't you think if you're out of town for some days, you miss them, but also don't you feel like I should be back? Well, yes, I was stuck on a TV show. The hours were way too long and I was having a crisis. Like if this thing keeps going, I'm going to miss my kid's childhood. I did have the panic of that, but it wasn't the guilt that I think moms experience. It's not like I had done something amoral. Mm. It was just, I'm providing in a way, I got to figure out a different way to provide. Yeah, my whole perspective on work on this sense of understanding what's more important than other things. Like I retired, we went into lockdown of COVID, Mm. then I was pregnant. And so, you know, I envisioned post-retirement traveling around the world and experiencing these amazing cities from a different perspective. And then I gave birth to Theo and then my world just revolves around him and work. And yeah, and I don't know when I'm going on vacation. I don't think I connected the dots between you retiring in 2020 and that, of course, yeah, we went right into quarantine. Do you think in some way I could oh. imagine that helping a lot? Because you were probably so used to the routine and the training and the traveling and all that busyness. Yes. And then when you retire, it stops on a dime. It could have been overwhelming, but luckily everyone stopped on a true. dime. Do you think that helped? 
I'm not sure. I think there's always a part of your body and your mind that has to process a big change like that. And so whether it happens in light of a pandemic or whether it just happens because that's where life takes you, there's definitely a moment of reflection, of consideration whether that was the right choice. I played this one sport for over 25 years of my life. So I was committed. I was in it. It was my passion. It's where I found and searched for some of my greatest moments in life. It had to be most of your identity. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And when someone would ask whether I wanted to have dinner that evening, that thought of, well, how late is my dinner? Am I going to be as fresh the next morning if I didn't attend that dinner. You're constantly pushing your body and your mind to this next level. And so one of the nice privileges in retirement is that you don't have to go there with your body. You don't have to go there with your mind, but you can still apply the knowledge that you have of how far is it that you can take your body to without pushing it over the limit. Because as a professional athlete, that's always on. You're constantly pushing it and pushing it. And so it's nice to just have a cold and be like, well, today I'm just going to do some emails from bed. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and not have to go perform in front of thousands of people. So th that's been a nice change. But yes, you're absolutely right. The identity, understanding that you've had this platform for 10 months out of the year, you had a voice and beyond just being an athlete, you attended a press conferences and you had so many different things going on, it dies down a little bit. Yes. And so what's that next version? It was very real for me. And I also appreciate that it's very real for someone that perhaps is coming off of school and finding their big next step in life and job, or it's someone that's done one thing in their life and after several years decides that that's no longer their passion. Yeah. So I could feel other people's dilemma and pain and reflection in my decision. I think there's a lot of contributing factors to why so many professional athletes get very depressed post-career. But I would imagine one of them is you didn't have the capacity to be pursuing a bunch of other hobbies. It's so all-consuming what you were doing. I imagine when it's over, there's the obvious stuff, but then there's also like, well, I haven't been pursuing all this other stuff right. that I'm going to fall back on. What's interesting about that is you only have so much time to dedicate to one craft. It was a single focus. It was the one thing that I just wanted to achieve and be great at every single day. But I also realized that it was only several hours of my day. How long am I able to go on the court and just give it all out? And yeah. Probably three, four hours, right? Then I'd go in the gym and then I'd have recovery and then I'd be in my hotel room. And so for those moments when you are just dedicated to one thing and particularly in sports, it was so important to recover. Yeah. And that's yeah. the one thing that this transition, finding the balance of what recovery looks like. Like if I played a night match at the US Open, I would take a nap come you know, 1 p.m. just before heading out to the courts, like 20, 30 minute nap. That was a must. Now, if I now, I mean, I don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> because you're now, ashamed of it, right? You're almost like, wait, <laughs> I'm not supposed to be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm supposed to be having lunch while on a Zoom call. So it's interesting the perception that people have of a packed schedule now in order for you to look like you're busy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and the productivity is certainly not the same, but I had a lot of downtime. And as an athlete, you have a lot of downtime to spend with yourself and your mind. And so what can you do with that extra time? You ask yourself questions on what are these other passions or interests and I was very curious as a young girl and I learned that sport was more than just being a tennis player and having a racket and 
having a sponsor. It was about having a voice and actually inspiring people and bringing a message to the forefront. But it always came down to what I wanted to say with my racket. And the more that I was able to say and the tougher that I was able to perform and the more that I won, the bigger my platform and the bigger my voice. And so that's why my focus onto this one sport was so important. Okay, another thing I'd imagine I would have a hard time saying goodbye to, and this will be a very strange analogy, but I will say one of the great things about being an addict is you have a singular priority, and there's something very comforting about that, that everything else gets downsized. Because I think so much of the anxiety of being alive is exactly what you described this morning. Like, I'm going to be with the kid for this long, and I'll be gone for that long. The anxiety of like making sure you're turning your focus into all the places you should and trying to decide that. Whereas when you have something like you were doing, it does give you a great excuse that just like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Mm. You don't for 10 months, like, if I didn't return priority. your call, like, we all know what I'm doing. I would imagine that's kind of a nice luxury. And fortunately, in many ways, the sport found me. You know, my dad was a fan. Like, no one in my family had any strong sporting genes. Right. And I was just a little girl that would go with my dad as he had fun with his friends and played doubles on a public park court. And it wasn't that I had many other interests and this just happened, like, to flourish. It was, I just picked up a racket. You were three when you first picked up a racket. Yeah, I started playing at four. Three sounds a little young. <laughs> well, in fairness, it said just you hit a tennis ball for the first time Probably at three. At four, three you, four, you yeah. took maybe a lesson for the First Maybe time. I set my eyes on the ball at three. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. you just went with your dad. Yeah, casually. My dad was a fan, and I'd show up on the courts with him. And my mom was very young when she had me, so she was still in university. So as she was studying, I'd go with my father. I never went to kindergarten, so I was always around them. And I was an only child, so all their eyes were on me, and I was very well looked after. And they had just left their home, right? Because while your mom was pregnant with you, Chernobyl happened, and they were at that time within thirty kilometers Whoa. of Chernobyl. Yes. That's its own unique childhood when you're growing up with parents that aren't at home. It was a very different upbringing. I was born in Siberia because of Chernobyl explosion, because my mom was pregnant with me. They were living 30 kilometers from the explosion in Belarus at the time. Have you considered this is why you're so tall? I mean, yeah. that, it's been mentioned a few times. <laughs> is your dad really tall or your mom? No one is as tall as I am. Oh, wow. interesting. It's definitely been a That's consideration. <laughs> Like a superhero movie. You got the well, good yeah, gamma rays. And, uh, <laughs> and we fled to Siberia, and that's where I was born. And then two years later, we moved down south to a little warmer town on the Black Sea. And then that's where I started. And then at the age of five, my father and I flew to Florida and have lived whoa. in the U.S. since. Okay, so there's so much oh, there. Whoa. There's a lot. <laughs> and there has to be so much there. Ultimately, did you leave Sochi to go to Florida? Yes. You were in Sochi right before you left yes. for Florida. Yes, so I went okay. from palm trees to palm trees. Yes. So <laughs> the visa your dad was able to obtain for you to go pursue tennis, again, Wikipedia's wrong. You were five, not seven. I've read seven, <laughs> whatever. It only allowed for you two to go. So mom couldn't join you for two years. My mom didn't join me for the first two years. I didn't see her for two years. How do we feel? What are the, what are the residual... <laughs> Yeah, like what does one pick up from that? That's pretty traumatic for a little girl to not have mom for a couple of years. It's very interesting looking back at it because I'm now a mother of a 16-month-old and 
I cannot imagine that type of separation. It was a world of unknown simply because visas were so difficult to get at that time, as they are now, by the way, but it just put so much emphasis on the fact that what an amazing gift that her husband and her daughter had the chance to go pursue a sport in the United States. So I think she looked at it from that perspective. And there's like a part of me that also thinks that we didn't have that direct connection with FaceTime and my dad didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone. So it was letters, like physical letters of writing to my mother. And not that it makes it easier or okay, but I think there was a sense of we will see each other. We don't know when that is. But I think if we had that daily seeing each other on video, it almost forms a closer bond and you constantly think, when am I going to see each other? Right. So it feels like it could have been helpful, but it was challenging for my mother. There's something really profound about having children in re- examining your own life. Oh, absolutely. Especially for trauma. Yeah, being an only child and constantly being around them and seeing how supportive they were in all aspects of my life. We grew an incredible bond and also like interest levels. My father was very influential in sport and he pushed me to a certain extent and he was tough but very fair. And my mother just came from a point of education and culture and any chance she got, even if it was in Sarasota, Florida, she would take me to the ballet there. It may have not been the best <laughs> at the time, but she exposed me to different things in life that weren't just hitting a tennis ball. That was one of her greatest gifts is she didn't really care if I was number one or 300 in the world. She wanted me to stay curious and to stay humble and to understand that hype is not real, don't believe in it, and work hard and the fruits of your label will eventually be seen in different forms. And it's not about being just number one in the world. Right. There's about three different stories happening in your life already at nine that are worthy of its own book. One would just be the life of a child prodigy tennis star, right? But the other one is immigrant family from the USSR going to Florida, mom arriving two years later, what culturally was happening when you guys got there? Was there excitement? Was there apprehension? Completely different worldviews at that time. Yeah, I wrote an autobiography several years ago, and it was for exactly that reason, because I felt like this relationship to my father, especially in the first two years as an immigrant, was such a unique and special story. And we were lost, but we found comforts in our daily routines. And because we had a goal and we had a vision and I had a passion, I would wake up. The first thing I do is go get my racket and dad, let's eat breakfast fast so we can go out on the court at 6 a.m. That's all I wanted to do. And so to have his guidance while we weren't financially stable at all, with $700 in our pocket as we landed in the United States. It Neither was the story. Neither one speaking English. We didn't speak yeah, English. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, and you had to say my name in English. And my name in Russian is Masha. And when I came to the United States, they all called me Marsha. Oh, Which sure. I said, no, thank you. I'll do Maria. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, so your real name's Masha. Masha, yeah. Oh, I That's like beautiful. Masha. Yeah. yeah. My hot. And I knew the basics, oh, no. the, you know, the animals. <laughs> Uh-oh, where's this going? The big breakthrough <laughs> in my life was no girls like me in elementary school. Okay. And then when I got to junior high, my brother gave me a cool punk rock haircut, put me in the right clothes. Gave you a new name? <laughs> my name was already Dax, so I was yeah. already there. <laughs> but stuck. Sasha, oh. the most popular eighth grader, liked me and asked me out. And it changed my whole life. And Sasha. So I had this <laughs> really, it's a very 
Oh, that's very important. This is almost it, Mom. Wow. I feel your energy coming yes, through right? from my chair. Oh, could, By the way, the travel. setup is very unique you have over here. I used the toilet just before starting this, and mm-hmm. Matt Damon's in the shower. Yes, he I mean, is. a life-size cutout of Matt Damon. Oh, I mean, yeah. I don't know where skull. else I'm going to find that again. <laughs> Baby Monica right there. I think this there. is a once in a it's lifetime. It's a unique space. <laughs> Thank you. It is. So yeah. well. It's like a weird no. clubhouse, isn't it? Yeah, there's some non-alcoholic... Totally off topic. No, that's exactly why I wanted to share that story of my life and my career on paper because it really was an amazing, beautiful chapter of my life that many of my fans, they didn't know all the details and the difficulties and how many people helped us along the way and how many people thought that we wouldn't make it and try to make it extremely difficult for myself. And how did we go through all those red lights and how did we find another path to keep going? And the inspiration. That's why I loved writing it. Do you have memories of things being exciting when you got here? Like, I don't know, Burger King, (laughs) uh, the beach? uh, Everything was larger. Okay, right. (laughs) Like a cookie jar was just larger, which I appreciate it because I have a huge sweet tooth. Uh I just remember this large jar of animal cookies. (laughs) It just came. It was probably from Costco or something. Yeah, Yeah, big box stores. Those those didn't exist. Yeah, And even the dollar stores were probably my father's shop. Everything just came in XXL size. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> we were in Cuba not terribly long ago. I guess eight years ago we were in Cuba and we befriended this young woman. And she had only left Cuba one time. I said, where did you go? And she said, I went to Russia. And I go, what did you think? And she goes, I just couldn't believe how well everything worked. Mm. Oh. And I go, you need to come to Where did she go? like, <laughs> Like, yeah, well, that's what a state of disrepair Cuba is. In. Yeah, like, electricity is going. True. Even it's when we relative. were there, like the electricity is going out nonstop. The elevators don't work. Buildings are crumbling. So she went there and she was like, "This place is like a Swiss clock." Yeah, everything felt cleaner. Just the roads, having five lanes on a freeway. Right. It was huge. Yeah. And what'd your mom think? So my mom arrived and she just thought I had a really bad haircut, and that was only because uh, my father just. He was handling that. Wasn't very skillful. He was handling everything. And all the clothes I were wearing were completely mismatched. So she was like, I got to get my daughter back on track here. What did he do job-wise out here? Just a bunch of jobs, very random, piecing it together, finding a few dollars here and a few dollars there. Could you feel the stress of it? Not at all. Well, because this is my hunch, and I don't want it to sound derogatory at all to Russia, but I would imagine even a low-income lifestyle in Florida might be still kind of more bells and whistles than it was back in Russia. Yes, we were comfortable back home. We didn't have much, but we had enough. When I look back at my childhood in the first five, six years there, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I was a kid and I had a great upbringing and I was with my parents and I ate yummy food and I had a few friends and I played a sport. I don't look back at it and think, oh, I desperately needed to get out of that situation. So I think the idea of going back to what we had wasn't so bad. When I think about the pressure that I most certainly must have had at some type of level or age. Maybe I managed it better than others because I appreciated that if I go back to the beginnings that I had, that I would be okay and that I would be comfortable. My parents and particularly my father, who was my coach for many years, he didn't establish 
what success was or what level of success I needed to achieve in order for us to feel like we had made it. That's the greatest gift that he gave me is that it was about piecing a few days together of great practices and improvements and perhaps, you know, playing a tournament one weekend, losing to someone and then going to another tournament and beating that same person. He saw those as victories. And he taught me those lessons. And so I would put all those scenarios in a bag and I'd hope that one day they would help me and that I'd pull those few tricks out in my improvements and my hard work and it would help me in a match scenario. Did school feel inanely frivolous to you? I loved school. You loved it. I loved And how did you get on in school? Because you're obviously learning the language. I was mostly homeschooled. I attended a school at an academy in Florida. Is this part of IMG? Yes. They had a school system? So they had a school system for athletes that traveled. Quickly, this is where Andre Agassi trained. Okay, yeah, many, many athletes. And that was the goal. That's why they went to Florida is to go to this incredible place. Yeah, I mean, it was just a training factory and it had school and several other sports. And the greatest part about that academy is that you had so many kids that you could compete with. So you just immediately understood your level. You had girls and boys from all around the world that you were testing yourself against. So... Wait, why is Florida, is it just because of this IMG? Now I'm remembering. That was the epicenter of academies of the sport. When someone says Florida and a tennis academy, that's right. immediately where everyone's mind goes. It's like so, yes. Serena and Venus Yeah, exactly. Also yes, there. Andre. Coco yeah, Marce- is there currently, right? No, I believe she trained or trains in France, but I oh. could be wrong. Okay, okay. You know, you guys are the exact same age. I know. We established that. Okay, that before. Okay. We yeah, did, yes. I know. You've lived yeah. many more lives than me, so I feel a bit intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, on the height and the... Uh, yeah, it does. Okay. Well, you don't need well, to you said about your own you, you spin said on it. <laughs> I love though that you're the same age because it's really. I know. Because I'm thinking of your life at seven. I was learning how to ride a bike in my garage. <laughs> I still don't know how to ride a bike, by yes, the way. Yes, I love I'm that. not very good. So on my way here, I had a call with one of your dear friends, Adam Grant. Oh, oh we no love kidding. Adam. Yes. He's doing a book tour shortly. So we were discussing something about that. And he always laughs at me when I tell him that I'm not very sporty. He finds finds that very funny. Mm -hmm. He's like, what do you mean you're not sporty? I was like, you do not want to see me ride a bicycle. Uh (laughs) How do you do with swimming? Because Monica also struggles with swimming. I swim okay, but like more in the Mediterranean than the pool. So with glass of rosé. Exactly. <laughs> Were yeah. there any boyfriends along the way in Not this Florida? Many. No. No. I was still really young. And then I started coming out to LA at like 11, 12. Okay. So I was still young. There was a coach here that I started coming out to see, and I'd come out every few months. Remember, my father actually found this coach and he was making a little bit more money. And he said, and you're just collecting a few extra dollars and saying, when I have enough, we're going to buy a plane ticket to Los Angeles because you're going to go see this coach. And then I turn on the TV and I'd see like news of, I don't know, shootings. And I'd be like, oh no, that's in Hollywood somewhere. And is that where we're going, Dad? And he's yeah. like, yes, but we're just going to see a tennis coach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just remember being like, are you sure we want to go to Los Angeles? It's scary there. And I love, ever since 12 years old, I've been basically living in California. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought you were in Florida for the bulk of all this. I would still go back and forth. But you're at a camp and there's co-eds and they're away from a lot of supervision. I would imagine that there would be so many cute crushes happening now. Everyone's too focused. Is that it? We had a little apartment with my father. I did stay for like six months or something and it was with other girls and they were much older than I was. That was actually quite a difficult period of my stays there because they didn't accept that I was 
good at one thing and that I was super focused and I wasn't part of the friends group. Mm. Okay, so this came as a great shock to us, but when we interviewed Sean White, we would have imagined everyone in the snowboard world loved him and the skateboard world where he was a champion in both worlds. And he's like, no, nobody liked me. They hated that I was at the competition because I won them all the time. I see these other guys, they all seem to be friends. And it was a very isolating experience for him. Was That's that exactly how it, it felt was. when I was in the dorm. I was young. I was there on a scholarship. I mean, we could not afford. It was 35 grand a year, right? Oh, and now it's, I think, like three times as much. Oh, but wow. yeah, at the time, it was probably that. And my parents could definitely not afford that. And so I was so lucky that I had that scholarship and that I was able to board there for some time, but also just to be able to train. And I knew everyone that boarded there paid the fees and everyone that boarded there also knew that I didn't pay the fees. And so it's kind of a sticky subject, right? Because you know you're there with a purpose and a goal and you're so young, but I definitely felt that I was following a different road yeah, and that my path was different and that I had to stay focused. And as I look back, I think that was my strength because I was talented at the sport, but I was never the strongest physically. I mean, tennis is a very physical sport. You know, I was lanky. I wasn't super coordinated. That's probably where my bike skills come in. (laughs) Uh (laughs) But I had this ability to do this one thing over and over and not lose my focus and not lose my concentration. So the mental stability and resilience when things weren't working well acceptance of a bad day or a bad match at that age, I think really helped me move forward and move quicker than some of the rest of my dorm mates. You're a wunderkind, right? At 13, you start competing in the 16-year-old class. Right. So your first kind of touch of glory is 13 and winning in a 16-year-old division and then deciding to go professional after that at 14? Yes. Have you met a 14-year-old lately? I know in your own <laughs> mind you probably think you were so old, but have you talked to a 14-year-old lately? No, I appreciate that They're babies. Just, yes. So there was a limit on how many tournaments you could play. So when you say I turned professional, it wasn't that I was playing like 20 tournaments a year. But I was playing girls that were in their 20s. She turned pro on her 14th birthday. And lost badly. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I remember that better than my birthday party. How did you take both the winning and the losing? Back then or in general? back then. (laughs) I was tough on myself. Can I argue, from what you've told me about your life, it's not like you have 25 friends that you're also celebrated in that world, and you're gonna go out to a pizza place and have a blast. This is what you do. This is virtually all you do, I'm imagining. Right. So when you lose and you've dedicated, you've really sacrificed the whole rest of your life for this thing, I have to imagine it's worse than when I would have lost. I don't know. I have always thought that losing, and perhaps that's a lesson that my dad taught me, perhaps it's something that I learned along the way, but I think losing sets you up for winning. I think the lessons that you learn when you are not at your best is when you're doing your best work. I never thought that I was playing my best tennis when I was at the top of my sport or number one in the world. And mostly because those times there's a sense of confidence and fearlessness that when you're performing at that level, things are automatic in a way. And when you win a match, you high five your team and you kind of move on to the next. But it's when you lose that you go back to the drawing board You huddle with your team, you have the tough conversations, you're 
in a vulnerable moment, particularly after losing, say, first round of a Grand Slam or even the final, which is one of the toughest moments Mm. for an athlete in tennis because you're out there getting a runner-up trophy. What other sport is the losing team out there or the losing individual getting a runner's-up trophy while tens of thousands of people are watching you as you're crying and upset and sad and, you know, you've gone that far and yet... It's the you silver lost. medal complex. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the people but that get bronze are happier. In tennis, than though, it's not silver medal. It's you lost or you won. And that's yeah. worse than zero like, sum. Yeah, which sucks. So that's to say that losing, as tough as it was, I appreciated the lessons that losing. There's nothing to gave. learn from a win, yeah. virtually. Winning's. I don't want to say it's easy because it's not, but there were moments in my career when I would play so well and I would win a tournament, maybe two in a row. And I'd be on this winning streak that, in a sense, I forgot how to lose. It's very dangerous to forget how to lose because losing is an emotion that you have to go through on your own, but also it's an acceptance with your team to tell them, I played like crap and I lost for these reasons. Like, you have to be honest. You have to be so raw And are you ready for that? And so when you haven't had that feeling of losing, you've been on this winning streak. You lose the ability to walk through that gracefully. My theory on players that do really well for a big tournament then perhaps another one and then lose early, then it's very difficult to kind of get back on track because it takes a lot more work. Like the self-examination. That makes sense. Will you consult tape? Like, is it that detailed? It's as detailed as you want it to be. You have to decide for yourself what team member you want, and you also have to pay for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it's like, do you need a physical therapist? Do you need a fitness coach? Do you need a hitting partner? Do you need a mental coach? Do you need a chef? Those are your choices. Yeah. Whereas a team provides those and has those on hand, and you tap into them. Right. Stay tuned for more armchair expert, if you dare. Would it be fair to say, though, that when you're looking at a winner, you're looking at somebody that has to have been honest with themselves? That it would be impossible to reach that height if you didn't have the ability to be critical and honest with yourself. It's got to be prerequisite. I think it's the best test of character. And that's not just about the athlete themselves, but also the team. I want to win with a coach that knows how to lose with me. I want to know that I can be in their presence and they can accept a tougher version of Maria that's upset and perhaps not happy with how training has gone in the past few months or wants to see change or whatever it is, like having a difficult conversation. I want to choose a partner and a coach that is honest about it and accepts it and gives it back to me. Do you think that this ability to take an honest and thorough inventory of your play has transferred into your interpersonal relationships? Do you think you're good at acknowledging when you and your partner have a fight? Are you able to apply that same skill? <laughs> now we're getting into relationships yeah. now. Yeah, that's what, that's we what do this show's here. all about, Maria. I see. It's just a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm not someone that says 
a lot. I don't speak all the time just to speak. I think I'm it more. It feels very Russian of thoughtful. you. Is that a kind of Russian Probably. characteristic? It's Probably. a great characteristic. Yeah, yeah. I'm more of an observer. And then when I'm confident in what I want to say or I feel like I've done enough research about something and I have conviction in my thoughts, then yeah. I say it. That's why I didn't think that I could be a good commentator because I don't just like to fill up the oxygen with words. I would say <laughs> in America, it's so valued that you have an opinion and a point of view that you often just start expressing an opinion, hoping you will know what your opinion yeah. is by midway through. You don't even know what it is. You're <laughs> yes. just saying so. It is so American right now. I think it's the problem with the world <laughs> is that everyone feels that they have to have an opinion on absolutely everything and they have to say it loudly and everyone has to hear it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting how problem? you have to have, that's what I'm finding. I don't know if challenging, but there's definitely this extra weight on everyone where you're put in a position to have something to say without really having the time to figure out what it is that you want to convey. Everyone has willingly become publishers of a newspaper, which is they have to fill their timeline, be it on Twitter or Instagram or wherever. They've got to fill it with content as if they're a magazine, but they don't have the time or a staff to actually or put the out skill. the content. It's a skill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, well, right, they're right. running on an algorithm. Then it starts running your life. Yes. That's my beef with social media. There's an external pressure of constantly having to show up for it so that there's relevance in this digital universe yeah. of your presence. Made up thing. <laughs> the thing we made up. I yeah. Mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And I never had anyone help with any things that I've done on social, but I've definitely faced that pressure of, oh, if I don't post for a week, then no one's ever going to see my post when I do make that post. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But then you have to stay true to who you are and you have to beat to your own drum. Is that the saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Walk to the beat of your Walk own to drum. The drum dance like sure, to the beat of your own drum. Sure, it's all in there. Beat your own drum, I think, is the, is the common denominator. Of course I got it wrong. <laughs> Wait, relationships. We left that dangling. We left that dangling. Everyone has a different way of approaching conflict and conversations. And you're right. I have the same approach as I had in my career where it's thoughtful. I give it some time, but I'm not very patient and I'm very stubborn. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and so I want to get to the chase. Like I want to get there. And I can't imagine you're terribly afraid of confrontation because, again, I don't think you could have gotten where you've gotten without having to have very difficult conversations with coaches and colleagues. No, I'm okay with it. You are. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. This is a high octane combo. I have the same one. Yeah. Don't mind confrontation. Very impatient. <laughs> I think stubbornness leads you to several good things in life, like persistence and resilience. And when you have some type of feedback that's difficult, but you just get through it, you take it as it is and then just keep going. So I think it served me well. But in some instances in my career, I think was a deficit. There's so many highlights we could go through, but one I want to jump to is 04. So at 17 years old, you win your first Grand Slam, Wimbledon, 17 years old against Serena. Yes. <sighs> now that I've seen how tall you are, I have a little less of this question, <laughs> but I can't imagine a more intimidating opponent at 17 in the finals at Wimbledon. Yeah. I need to know... What was happening mentally? How Oof. were you regulating yourself? Were you intimidated? Do you have a zone you go to? Like, how the fuck do you navigate that moment? There was so much on the line in that match. One of the biggest reasons was because it was Wimbledon. I actually had just played Serena a few months back at a tournament in Miami, and she easily won that match in two sets. And it was the moment itself where I really felt the weight 
it was the fact that Wimbledon, in my eyes growing up, was the event, the yeah, tournament, yeah. the place where as a professional, you want to end up, you want those French doors to open to center court. And it did. And it just happened to be the final for me. Wow. And it's interesting. It was one of the first few times in my career as a young girl that I felt what it was like to be in the zone. You know, that when athletes speak about yeah, like being the flow. in the, the flow and in the zone, I had that moment in the middle of the tournament and it was in the fourth round. And it's not that I had that much experience in these Grand Slam tournaments. Just two weeks before that was my first time getting to a quarterfinal at the French Open. Even though I lost, it was a huge victory. If the season had ended, that would have been an enormous... Great, yeah. Right. Yeah. right. I found myself in this flow state in the middle of the event playing against someone that also should have beaten me. But I won that match so confidently and so routinely and... It felt like I was letting go of all the repetition that I put. I was letting go of any fear that I had. And I just allowed the moment and my skill to shine through. Would you say there's a bit of magic involved? Like why it hits you when it hits you? You could prepare in the same way I'd imagine for a thousand matches. And it never but, works the same. Right. So there is some bizarre ethereal magic that takes Absolutely. over, right? To think how many things have to align and work for you to get to that moment. Yes. And what a big, big deal it is. And I think it was also a gift that I'd never been in that position. And so as a 17-year-old, I was fearless because right. I didn't have any Nothing experience. I didn't have like, oh, I've been in this moment. All I had was just, I'm playing a phenomenal opponent that's achieved so much. And I'm playing on one of the biggest stages in sport. Forget yeah. about tennis and yeah, sport. Exactly. Yeah, period. And I've been, because I was so young, on the cover of every paper, every day since the fourth round of this tournament. And the British media adds like everything. Oh, it's <laughs> just like the like story of Boiling the... to this oh moment. God. And if you can just only win this match, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I had horse blinders on. Wow. It was just me. It's just my opponent. And even though all those external factors that I just mentioned were present in every way... I didn't think about them at all. They were deep in the deep background. I woke up that morning. We stayed at a family's house. Okay. We rented the upper floor. It was like, I wanted to say bed and breakfast, but they didn't even give us breakfast. Right, like, it's just we, a stayed, <laughs> we rented two bedrooms. And I remember I woke up with a bit of a cold and I was so upset because I didn't have a strong immune system. So of course I called my mom and I was like so upset. And my dad's like, just have your oatmeal, have your strawberries. You know, you'll get to the courts, you'll have your warm up, and you'll be completely fine. And I was completely fine. Yeah. You are. Yeah. So every time I've had a cold sense, <laughs> I look back to that moment. I think of my father's words. You're going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think maybe it was manifested, the cold, a little bit? Because there's so much fear. Of oh, I'm The sure. body showed away. Um, the body right. was like a way out almost. I mean, probably. Yeah. <laughs> was like, yes. get me out of Yeah. Out of the body's like, this is so stressful. We're going to give you an excuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, no, I'm still showing up. Yes. <laughs> this was going to be a overall question, but I'm uniquely interested at this moment in time. When do you know you can win? Do you know? You don't. So you don't I mean, have a perhaps. moment where you go, I'm going to win. No. You don't. Tennis isn't like that, though, because I feel like it could change. There's too many opportunities. Yeah. There's so many momentum swings. Yeah. And it's also that feeling everyone functions differently in those moments and scenarios. But I was never a player that wanted to feel overly confident. I liked when my preparation wasn't exactly going according to plan or when 
I wasn't my best physically because I'd get on the stage in like that first round match and I knew I had to put an extra. I didn't like that feeling of content, of Mm. feeling like, oh, things are going well. My chances are good. No. I was like, actually, no, I've had a pretty crap week. Yeah. You know, and I got to bring it. And maybe it was just my defensive mechanism of functioning with opportunity like that. But it's really how I went about almost every single event. It was very rare that I showed up and said, I'm feeling fantastic. I would never say that to my coach. (laughs) Right. Okay. When you walk out and it's about to start, do you at any point think I'm going to win or I'm going to lose or I'm scared or I'm not scared? Or is that not there? In preparation, you definitely put a few scenarios through your mind because you compare yourself to different matches against that opponent. Also, I'd like to do video analysis. So the older I got, the more video I had to watch and the more times I'd face these opponents. And it's very rare that you had like a 6-0 win to loss record. So there are definitely times where you lost to those opponents. And I'd love to look at those matches because those are real. Those were moments that could happen and they could happen again. And also like my body language, I like to examine, did I show my opponent that this wasn't my day? Okay, maybe I wouldn't win today, but am I going to be there until the very last point so they know and they feel that pressure Mm -hmm. that... The match isn't over till they win the very yeah. last point. I love that tennis show on Netflix so much. You're on it. Breakpoint. Yes, Breakpoint. Break yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. It's fun seeing everyone's feedback on it because I think it's the first time that a show has been done on the sport. And there are times where it's quite dark. Yeah. <laughs> and Yo, the one yeah. piece of feedback I've received is people hadn't really appreciated how dark and lonely it is. If I had to list in order the most mental games... You know, if it's not number one, I feel like it's tied maybe with like golf too. I see, I see golfers, what golfers go through over those three days and like they're ahead, they're ahead, they're ahead. And then something just clicks. Nothing's, they don't not have the ability to do it. It's so clearly a hundred percent mental. Do you think tennis is number one as far as being just mental, mental, mental? I think you may have more opportunity because both golf and tennis, the schedules are so long. And this idea of constantly having to show up and having a responsibility and an average amount is probably like 19 to 20 tournaments a year. And when you're not playing a tournament, you're training. So the pressure of constantly having to perform at a high level and everything that comes with just being an athlete at an event, the sponsor responsibilities, the interviews, the press, you have a schedule of things at Formula One. I mean, what Lewis is doing ahead of a race I actually was in Miami and I saw some of his sponsor responsibilities and I just couldn't believe the amount of events and interviews. And the team's hosting parties that the sponsors are there and you got to be there at night and you got to be there in the morning. And then how do you wake up and want to do your job, beat someone (laughs) Yeah, yeah. when so much of your energy is drained? I think it also just shows you when there is that individual and that star, right, that wins over and over, how special it is because of everything else that they've also had to be responsible for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really Not just the tennis part. Can we wrap up Serena? Just Is that the greatest victory? Is that the most most relief you've ever felt? It wasn't even relief. It was like, you're so young. You don't really even know the stakes of what you're doing in a weird way. It's strange being an athlete in the midst of their sport because as much as you realize how special it is to hold like the big trophies, it's almost like an artist that has to pass away or become older for everyone else and for themselves to acknowledge 
and realize what weight they had in that field. It's hard to be present in it. Because it's a cycle that just constantly continues. And I'm not saying that's great. It is what it is. And you can't get ahead of yourself. You can't think, oh, I'm just the Wimbledon champion. You know, like the barista still making coffee at your local coffee shop. And you can't believe the hype. Yeah. But that must be hard. Especially with your favorite approach, which is I need to feel a little bit off, a little bit underdoggy, a little chaotic. Like I'm on the cliff. But when all the the rock trembling a little bit are coming in (laughs) and they're asking you to be on the cover of this, that must be hard. Well, that's where your team comes in. That's where the no's are so important. That's when you need a bulldog at the gate saying, hey, I'm protecting here. You have to say no in order for better opportunities and for a powerful yes to come about. This is a subject that comes up often. Being a retired athlete is around female empowerment and what does that mean? And you have to establish what is it that you're passionate about from a young age because you do have a platform and you do have a voice that you cannot take for granted when you're young. I mean, Billie Jean King came up to me. I was about 14 years old and she said, what you do today, tomorrow, in 10 years, ultimately sets up a path for the next generation, which is so powerful. Yeah, I didn't realize the power of that message then. I certainly do now. But it's really important to also find other lanes because as a female athlete, there will be a point in your career where you will have to make decisions whether you want to continue or not because your body may be breaking down or you want to start a family or you just lose passion whatever the reason, what is it in your life that you're also curious and passionate about and that you want to know more and that you want to grow on? And so you do have to say yes to opportunities, like whether they are sponsors that can help grow you in another dimension. I think that's really valuable. It just has to be the right one. And it's very difficult to determine what the right partner is for you. When you were talking about your dad, he was your coach for a while. Was it complicated it's always complicated when dad's involved (laughs) yeah i bet right yeah of course well you just said lewis like lewis at some point had to fire his father right i mean i did too Uh, 21 years old that's what i wanted to ask about so my father was my coach from the very beginning for one reason because we didn't have money for another option yeah (laughs) so the longer he was my coach the more he knew about me and my game and knew what was best for me and so That is what I appreciated is that there was no one else that knew my struggles and my challenges and my game and the belief that he had in me was exceptional. But he also knew how to challenge me in the right ways, which in the dynamic of a father-daughter is very hard. How much do you push your child so that they get the most out of this But they're not in a year or two saying, no, dad, you pushed me so much that I want to leave. So it's such a fine line. I'm already thinking about it as a parent. Yes, (laughs) yes. Like how tough are you in order to be in line and to be right, but also to make sure that they have a chance to make their own decisions. I still have an amazing relationship with my father and I value it because we went through this journey together and it was so unique. I imagine what'd be hard about that is it's working. Even up till 21, like it's working. You're yielding results. You're ranked number one at 18. You know, you win the US Open, then you win the Australian Open. All this happens before you have to fire him. So I would imagine it's not like you have the best case to make, like this isn't working. It's that I wanted to do it on my own. Yeah. yeah. We got there as a team and we're a phenomenal team. And I felt mature enough to make that decision because I was comfortable with where my game was. I was comfortable with the other team that I had. And it was also, I wanted him to enjoy his life. He spent 20 years working and grinding and bringing in the best 
talent to help me grow and just being by my side all the time. And there was like a part of me that just wanted to repay him in a way that money doesn't. And I wanted him to have some freedom in his life. And, you know, he's like an adventurer. He loves to bike and to hike. And I was like, go in the mountain somewhere. Yeah. He was fine with it. I think some part of me would also be like, hey, just be my dad now. Like, let me just be your daughter. You be my dad. I don't think I thought that that would ever be an issue for him. I knew that he would always be there as a dad. It was actually because I made that decision after winning my third Grand Slam that I said, now is when I want to make the change. I was taking a huge chance. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to prove something that was for me. And it was an ego check, I think, for both of us. For my father to be like, okay, I'll step away from my position as the leader of the team. And also for me, it's quite ballsy to be like, oh, everything's working, but I just want to do it my way Yeah, now, let me Dad. fix something that's yeah. not broken <laughs> at all. Yeah. We just want time to make a change. <laughs> I mean, that happens all the time now, by the way. It does. <laughs> in sport. Well, I had a global question for you because we all watch these docs. You watch Tiger and you find out what his dad did. Verstappen and his father, Serena and Venus, their father. Do you think a kid can become a a champion without that parent a friend of ours charlie he was a college football player that was his life he's got two boys he's like i just don't really think i have it in him to stay on them enough to make them champions and then we were just thinking like yeah can you become one without that what's interesting is there are many examples in the world of alternative sports snowboarding skateboarding bmx all this and my hunch there is that those kids all had to do it on their own because their parents weren't trying to fulfill any of their own fantasy of being in those roles. So they didn't even care, oh, you're going to do that thing. So we see it there, but we don't see it really in other sports. Do you think you can get a champion without being that kind of parent? I think you need somebody in your corner that is pushing you and protecting you. And they are very different roles. And I think when you are not perhaps connected to the child as a parent, the protection element is difficult to achieve at that level as a parent. I felt very much since becoming a mother, this wanting to be and wanting to do anything I could to be there for my son because I want him to be under my wing and feel that he's safe and secure and happy. And I don't know if it's not someone that was with you from a young age and that has seen you grow up and that is just invested in you as a human being. It's I think hard to build a skill of being a, like a protective parent and playing that role. I haven't seen it often. Yeah, do you know, did you have any peers? Like we just watched the Beckham documentary too. Yeah. And it's like the dad's like over and again and again yes, and again and true. again and again. And, and, and you wonder, his, could he have ever done it on his own gumption without the again and again? And his dad loved soccer so much. So there's something vicarious, vicarious yes. that's happening with a lot of these parental figures where it works. Tiger's dad, he yeah. wanted to be a golfer. Yeah. But what's so interesting about these parent characters is it's not that they knew what success looked like because yeah. they themselves have never reached it at that level. Right. And so it's so interesting to watch them go through their son's or their daughter's journey and how do they handle it and how do they keep their egos in check. It's like a right. big... Yes. So complicated. It's very, very complex. Your boy isn't old enough yet, but already ours are eight and 10. And anything spectacular that they do, you have to check yourself. Your first thought is like, 
yep, I'm doing a great job. I got him to do that. And then the other brother's like, you didn't have anything to do with this. They genetically are this way. And you know, so stop true. fucking high-fiving I mean, yourself. My son made a owl sound. <laughs> and, I, and, and I was like, oh, I mean, genius. Genius, he's got to be. That came from me. I know. And then you go, and it's because I read to him and I look him in the eye. You take some ownership over their stuff. I love that feeling, though. I was joking from the beginning because as I was cleaning like milk bottles, I just looked back at my career and thinking of all the sports drink bottles that I would clean after a day of practice. And I was like, it is as if my previous life has set me up for success in this. <laughs> right. like, I've got this down. <laughs> Repetition. How many diapers have you changed? Oh, it's all. Oh, God. More than Alexander. <laughs> oh, boy. Putting him under the bus. <laughs> so your career is spectacular. You're a career Grand Slam winner. That sounds very fancy. It, you know, is, it, is. Very it is very fancy. fancy. For people who don't maybe know that much about tennis. Okay, so right. There's a bunch of tournaments throughout the year. There's four majors. There's the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, and U.S. Open. And if you were to win all of them in your career, that's called a career Grand Slam. If you win all those. It could be a those, Glam Slam, too. That'd be cool. Well, I, you know, I was already starting to say the next thing, which is a fun one, which is a Golden Grand Slam, which is if you win an Olympic Gold gold and a grand slam you can be a golden grand there's a lot of different there's a lot of variety pick your own little holiday basket <laughs> but your career is spectacular i am curious because you won silver in the london, london olympics 2012 and there's been all this wonderful social science about the plague of silver people enjoy bronze they like winning a bronze they got to be up on the podium i mean i like bronze too yeah. <laughs> for my house fixtures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some nice waterworks bronze. Yes. Were you bummed that you won a silver in the Olympics? I guess that's my question. It was the only Olympics that I competed in. Yeah, because you couldn't go to Beijing yeah, because you late. had your rotator cuff. Yes, and the first one after Wimbledon was too late or too young. So one of those. I don't even remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, of course, as an athlete. You want gold. You want gold. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But the There's lay person no would go like, say it. a lay person would assume, myself included, if I want a silver in the Olympics, I would be on top of the world. But that's not the case. It's very well documented. Yeah, like in tennis, it's either the champion's trophy or that's it. It's as if you weren't there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there was huge significance in that the feeling of being part of, like for a tennis player that plays so many events, it does almost take away the meaning of what the Olympics is because you're just constantly going from one event to another. And although the majors are where you want to perform the best, the Olympics is at that level, but it's once in four years. So you move on to the next one. I won that silver medal and I think I had to fly somewhere in the U.S. to play another tournament. So it's such a quick I know it sounds You don't crazy. have time to wallow. You don't have time. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a blessing, yeah? In some ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, in other ways, it burbles up because you never processed it. You're like arguing with your husband, and all of a sudden the silver medal's Somewhere there. Burbling. Dangling. <laughs> Dangling. <laughs> Is it on display anywhere? No. If you come to my home, you wouldn't even know I played tennis. Well, that's nice. Her and home is an architectural digest is Gorgeous. Oh, you saw her yeah, house. Yeah, so it's very sweet. So Thank beautiful. I'm so mad I didn't see it. You can see it. I'm going to check it Just out. I'm nosy as a motherfucker. It's I mean, really, you did really do nice. your homework. You've got the stats right. He's, yeah, he's but you can it. imagine where someone who does have a trophy case at home. Yes. That I don't you have can imagine case. someone not putting their silver medal in oh. it because it would remind them that they were mad. 
I guess. I guess. <laughs> but tennis, I guess, like you said, it's sort of like basketball. The U.S. basketball team, they just pop into the Olympics, it seems sure, like. Then sure, they pop sure. out, they're yeah, back yeah. to their normal. It's and they'd certainly the rather same. win the NBA They just final. add a little exactly. extra weight to their suitcase. Yeah. Yes, it's just an added thing. It's not the most important thing. It is special, but you do move on very quickly. Just really quick, if I had the silver medal, that's how you'd have to knock on my front door. Oh it my would gosh. be strapped to the front door and okay. you'd have to use it to use go clank, 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 clank. Yes, it'd be the knocker. Or a door stopper. <laughs> that would be that. also good. You should Could dig it up good. and use it as a door <laughs> stop. Yeah, sure. I mean, be my guest. You can borrow it. Oh my I would God. love to rent it That'd off you great. and put it on. Put it in here with all our knickknacks. Your knickknacks. Yeah. <laughs> it would look so good. <laughs> Okay, also interesting about your career, it's not new, but the level at which you did it was novel in that you were very, very busy with lots of business as well. You were the spokesperson. I think people always had racket contracts and sneakers, but you were doing fashion, you were doing products. You had what would otherwise be a very full-time job as a ambassador for brands. Did you enjoy all that? I loved it. I could see if you were shy, it might be uncomfortable. So I was eager to learn. The amazing part about being in a room with big brands is that these are individuals that are very smart. They're the best of the best in marketing and advertisement, CFOs to CEOs. And it was like a free education Graduate on my school. day job. And there was a choice just to be the face of a brand and to show up to a Tiffany shoot or to a Porsche shoot. I mean, I worked with incredible brands and I would say to myself, why not use this opportunity to learn about the process? Like, what does it take to put together a fashion shoot? Who's putting this together? What are the pieces? What are the responsibilities? So when you show up to a shoot after knowing all this, you're not just clocking your time. You are understanding everything that goes on behind the scenes. And that's what makes great events. That's what makes great product. So... That's what I appreciated about those partnerships. But clearly it interested you, the business aspect. I acknowledge that tennis wouldn't be my entire life. And it's really hard to do that as an athlete because it is your universe and it's such a big part of your identity. And so you're afraid to realize that is a part of your life, but it's not all of you. Yeah, it would feel dangerous to acknowledge yeah. that. Like you might lose your mojo. Exactly. I love the idea. I mean, when I would travel and they would still have those forms that you'd fill out like your name and what's your occupation mm -hmm. yeah. handwriting that I was an athlete brought so much joy to me yes yeah. like yes, that yes. was my identity but everything else that came with it like meetings with the c-suite of Nike and incredible brands that made me want to get in the weeds of a business that was fascinating and when I'd have time and I would be injured and that would happen a lot just because <laughs> constantly an athlete and you're yeah. you know you're like getting three injured. shoulder surgeries <laughs> yeah you have free time besides the rehab and getting yourself back and staying in shape you have time to learn I wanted to get in the weeds of businesses because for some reason I realized that this would be like my life yeah. moving forward I'm so fascinated the ultimate rags to riches story if you come from the Soviet Union was $700. And then you become the highest paid female athlete for 11 years in a row. What's the family's relationship with that abundance? It's so funny. I don't spend a lot on things that you think I spend on, like shoes. I like shoes, but you go into my closet and you're like, what were the rest of the shoes? <laughs> right, right. I don't have a lot of things in my house because aesthetically I just appreciate less. And so when I do buy, I don't buy cheaply. I yeah. definitely say that. 
but I buy well in a way that I will live with these things. Like I will wear these shoes for a long time and I will rinse and repeat them. And then I will buy a sofa that I'm going to reupholster in five years. And I'm going to keep that sofa because I made a conscious decision that this was the right one for me and it's going to live with me. So decisions that I make around money are around useful things. I love to travel. I genuinely love to explore and be uncomfortable and be comfortable. Oh, I like yeah. to stay. <laughs> I like to be comfortable. Yeah, yeah. But I love like going down an alley and unexpectedly coming into an antique shop and finding that silver spoon that I'm never going to use. But oh it's just like that God. moment. You are You're really s- preaching to the choir. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those little shops. And I love taking my friends on those journeys. I would only have two weeks of vacation every year, maybe 10 days. So one week a year, I promise to my mom and to my friends that every November off season, I take them to an extravagant vacation. Nice. So when I started making money, I remember the first big moment, holiday moment was I went to the Amman in Phuket. Yeah, 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 yeah. I must have gained, so, I mean, all yeah, I yeah. ate was like sticky rice and white oh rice and God, this rice, and mango rice. <laughs> <laughs> How ironic you also worked with Amon, no? Yeah, I've become a wellness ambassador as they call what? me, yeah, yeah. which is a funny <gasps> title, but I am curating retreats. So I'm bringing in talent that I used to work with in my Amazing. career, everything from recovery to breath work to performance, working out, just like a Ooh. holistic approach for their clients for three days. So that's why I mentioned Phuket because our first one is going to be in in Phuket. Oh, it is. Yeah, wow. in February, which is very exciting. And you're taking Monica and I. We are these just I mean, athletes, or yeah. are we? <laughs> no, they're inner athletes. Could definitely be <laughs> inner athlete. <laughs> but you have cute stories of like you won Wimbledon, and you had been to California so many times, as you already yeah. said. And after Wimbledon, you went to California, but you stayed in a very nice hotel. It actually wasn't that it was so nice. It was definitely an upgrade from where we were staying before. I went back to my coach for training week after winning Wimbledon, after taking a couple of days off. And my manager booked us into a different hotel and we show up at this hotel and it's very close to the ocean. You could hear the waves. It wasn't an ocean view. Okay. <laughs> Hadn't made that much money Parking yet. Parking lot view, but <laughs> could hear the ocean. But I could hear the ocean. And I went to the bathroom and there was a bath and there was like a yellow rubber I called my manager and I said, I made it. I really made it. But this is what I'm talking about. Like, so this is the cute part of your story. And I hope you're grateful for it because a lot of the kids you were playing tennis with at IMG, they were already rich. The parents were already sending them this $35,000. So when they made it, they like bought a house next to the house they already grew up in. There's really no sense of like, God damn it, there's rubber ducks in the tub. So I just want to know, did mom and dad, I mean, really came from very modest background. Money is a very interesting dynamic when you go from having a little to a lot yeah. in a very quick turnaround. No middle ground. You don't learn There's to manage no middle it ground. slowly. No middle ground. And not only the relationship with money, but the dynamic of the relationship between your parents and yourself yes. as a youngster and money. Yes, and you're giving your parents money. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's right. a unique dynamic a for a child and parent. And I have to say it is one of the greatest gifts that my parents gave me was they never had the desire to extravagantly spend the money that I provided for them. Well, they probably have the same fear of it that I perhaps, do or anyone else. Perhaps, so. but it's so easy to spend. 
Yeah. It's oh God, so yeah. easy to be like, oh, that's a shiny car. And I'm not personally fascinated by those things, but I do appreciate like a great vacation with my friends. Yeah. <laughs> I love shiny cars. And I um, love treating them. And vacations that's where, are the place to spend. They're the experiences. That's what they say. Yeah. <laughs> you leave your everyday world, your responsibilities. It's very rare that we get to slow down and reflect. Yeah. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. Were you lonely on tour? It's a coin, right? On one side of the coin, if you're on a team sport, you share the losses together, which is helpful. You share the victories together, which is less rewarding ego-wise, because it's also shared. But probably for me, all comes out in the wash. I guess I'd prefer the team experience. But it's such a solitary sport. On that tour, are people friends? Or is the competition so tough? It's hard tough? to make deep friendships. And that's coming from my own experience of being in it and being a part of it on a daily basis. It's just hard to say, let's go have a shrimp cocktail. And then tomorrow I just want to rip you apart. Yeah. You need to protect like, to your competitive To have that mentality edge. I had difficulty with. And I realized that I had difficulty with that from a very early age. When I would go to the courts, like that was my office. It was the world where I would show up, I would perform, and win or lose, I'd go home and I had my friends to call and my parents were there. That was enough and that was okay. But everyone is very different. So there are people on tour that are I think so. paling around yeah. with other players. I don't know how, you know, is it an acquaintance? Is it a friend? Is it someone that you're going to see when you retire? Right. I have a fantasy for you that in retirement, these people who have the same shared bizarre experience that really only they can relate to what you went through. I have a fantasy of you having friends like post-career that were yeah. also in it. I don't know why that seems appealing to me for you. Yeah, but we kind of forget it so quickly. When people remind me about the daily grinds and the responsibilities that I had when I was in it every single day, it seems like a long time ago because life takes you to new places and you have to show up for a new set of people and for now a child and new responsibilities. You adjust and you get into that role and you just go with it. I think it's hard though because... I understand why you have that dream for okay. her. Tell me why. <laughs> if that does happen, I'll call you and, yeah. and, okay. and, and let Look, you know. everyone's fine. They don't need to do anything I'm saying. But what I'm saying is like in the same way I get enormous comfort from sitting in a room with other alcoholics that know exactly what the experience mm. is. Yeah. You don't have a ton of girlfriends you can sit down with and go like, it's fucking hard to be me and have a relationship. What's interesting is I feel like you can. Perhaps not on that level and intensity, but we all, wherever we are in our lives, at different stages, we go through similar things. Yeah. I never felt that I would sit down with my girlfriend and that they wouldn't get it. Right. Yeah. Like, that's not a girlfriend. Okay. Yeah. I mean, your best friend is not someone who's been through many of your life experiences post being a kid. And he gets it. But those are the key ones. Like, I definitely need my best friend to know what that childhood was like. I guess. I mean, it was just me, my yeah, limitations. I don't know. Last question I want to ask you is, 
as we said, 19 years you played professionally, you have a week off a year where you go to Phuket. <laughs> what an enormous God, fucking right hole is left in your life afterwards. Now, we know you filled it with the baby and you had COVID. Do you think your entrepreneurship is what's there to take up that enormous focus and ambition? Is that what we've turned this dedication to? Yeah, and I think the weaving thread is a mindset that I carried as an athlete. It got me to some of the greatest moments of my career. And now tapping into those experiences and applying that mindset to the endeavors that I'm a part of now. One of the things I've learned in the last couple of years is as I've met founders, particularly female founders, is if you look at some of the stats, like Fortune 500 companies, 80% of the executive females have had a sporting background. Oh, really? Competitive oh, sporting background. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, when someone says, oh, you've done one thing, how are you going to do it? It's not that. It's how do I apply the lessons that I learned and make them relative to what I'm doing now. And so my mindset and the world of performance mindset, something that I'm tapping into that I'm increasingly interested in because so many of the female entrepreneurs that I meet have had those backgrounds. Yeah. You're very engaged with other female entrepreneurs. Yeah. I'm getting a chance to learn about them and establishing what those ideas are and passing them on to others, especially younger females. Your previous life had such specific goals. They were given to you. Here's what the goal is. How do you define what your goals are now in such business? That's a great question. It's different. When someone asked me what my five or 10 year plan was as an athlete, it was like, well, I just want to win more Grand Slams. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I want to be yeah. number one in the world. And in business, it's slightly different. It's yeah. also slightly different being in my mid 30s and being a mom and juggling several things. When I was a tennis, like, although you could say I had a lot of things on my plate, tennis was that one thing. And now there's several. And the goal is not about just one thing. It's having a healthy balance between those things, being present, giving myself time, being a little bit more relaxed and not constantly on and having to expect these high things for my body and for myself. But growing. I mean, I've been deeply curious since a young age. I love to learn. I'm a sponge when it comes to like process and grind and getting inside of something in order to achieve greatness. And so business is something that I continue to work on. And there's so many things in business that I feel like I'm smart in a few and less so in others. And so I want to improve the things that I'm not yet well established in. There are much more abstract goals to set. Like, I guess you could go, I want to be number one in this market. Okay, that could be a goal. That's pretty hard. But you're probably not going to go like, oh, I want to make this amount of money. Or I want the value of the company to be this amount. Like, your goals now are going to get a lot more opaque. Yeah, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. You are. Because it's such a 180 from what you had. Like is. Again, you could visualize so easily. It was so prescriptive. And this is up to you to decide. What I like about this chapter is that you have time to form those goals. Whereas when you are started something from a young age, that is the goal. That's what you're going to. It's almost determined for you. And now I feel like I'm in a position to shape what that is. I mean, I would love to be able to mentor and touch and be part of young females' 
lives, to help them grow from school or their academic to their first job or helping them decide what is the next chapter, emphasizing their great qualities and potential. There's so many female athletes that are at this junction in sport where they want to do more, but they don't know how, they don't know where, what resources are they tapping into, what's the team. I would love to be part of those individuals' journeys. That's lovely. Did you watch the Beckham doc? I have. Okay. I love documentaries. So good. Same. We loved it. But towards the end, one of the other players said that athletes are addicts and that's their addiction. And then when that ends, like when it's retired, I mean, then you, you see like, we keep talking about it, Beckham with one mushroom. mushroom at a time right. and it's like so crazy. Cleaning yeah, that yeah. fucking grill for an hour and a half. Yes. And I, I wonder appreciated if you can re- that quality, by the way. <laughs> of course. I was like, I looked over to Alexander. I was like, what? <laughs> Do you see how his closet is organized? You don't dress as cool. You don't have the tattoos. At least you could fucking clean like him. I mean, well, he's yes. British at least, right? Right? He is. Yeah, that's <laughs> but does not halfway clean there. That well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's still many things. Like, I put my left shoe on first. Little quirks. Yeah. All these quirky little things. What's the most preposterous part of your old routine? Could you tell us the most embarrassing one? Oh. Did you have to turn a faucet on and off three times or anything weird? I didn't step on lines like when I could avoid them. Okay, good. I had my little routine in between points where I'd look at my strings, kind of like get my strings together. It was always, I did it 10 times or 10 strings or something. Oh, I want to go back and watch yes. this. <laughs> it was like my little routine in between the points, but... I think a routine like then becomes a habit and then just becomes, I can't live without doing this. Yeah. <laughs> but did you have like, like I'm um, going to lose a match if I don't. Putting your left shoe on first is very specific. That's the kind yeah. of thing I like. It's those you little appreciated things. that one? I did. <laughs> the weirder, the better. Okay. Yeah. You know? I think that addiction thing was very Accurate. Absolutely. Well, and most specifically, I think if you look at what an addiction is, it's using something externally to regulate how you feel internally. And that is the ultimate display of that. Yeah. Yeah. In your case, like, I'm going to control this stupid fucking ball man. (laughs) And that is how I will regulate everything emotional and internally. Yeah, but there's been a lot of letting go, which I think is a good... I mean, at least that's what I keep telling myself. It's a good It'll thing. It'll probably come back up. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> when there's a bully in your kid's school, yes. you know, the old competitor will come up. Okay, then the last thing I'm going to say is in your many entrepreneurial endeavors, the one that I don't know how you had the foresight to get involved with in 2014 is Supergoop. Supergoop, I love Supergoop. is the greatest sunblock of all I time. I agree. It's I, fantastic. Oh, right. We can't call it sunblock. Sunscreen. Oh. I can't tell you. I enjoy putting it on more than like a moisturizer. It's, it's the only great. one I've ever wanted to use. What Wait, a great plug for them. It's yeah, and I have nothing is. to do with them. I don't own stock in it. But, uh, it's a funny story. Oh, tell me. It was the first investment I ever made. Really? Wow. Yes. All the previous brand partnerships, it was just like an annual deal. Retainer, yeah, yeah. You know, you get, you get your paid. check at the end of the year. But you took equity. Yes, this is the first time I had equity in the company at the time when they had less than 10 employees. Wow. And I... Almost knocked on Holly Thaggard's door, who's the founder, and I just said, this is the only sunscreen that just doesn't get in the way of my sweat, and I don't have to rub my eyes, and my eyes don't itch, and I said, listen, I don't know what position you're in financially, I don't want any money from you, I want to help you grow, I love your product. I've worn it for almost a year now, and if there's any way I can help grow this message. And she said, the only message I want to grow is that skin cancer is preventable. 
It's the one cancer that is preventable. And the way she positioned it was that imagine that we had a cream to prevent breast cancer. Yes, that's And so it completely true. changed my perception. And we got into business together. That's awesome. It is such a good product. Yeah, it's the only one I'm really willing to wear repeatedly. I fucking love it. It's so silky. I didn't know. Here's what's confusing about just it. just silky. One, yeah, it's silky. Oh, oh. This one it goes I, on smooth. I think it's silky. I just didn't think that I'd hear that from you. Yeah, very silky. <laughs> okay. Ironically, I'm also kind of obsessed with Victoria Beckham's face moisturizer that has a tint in it. These are these little wow. flavors of me that I have. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm learning a lot more. But I'm going to go even further <laughs> With super goop. They should give me some equity. Okay. If you look at the top toothpastes, personally, I'm a Crest 3D white guy. I like it. It's my preferred toothpaste. Do I think it's three standard deviations above the next best one? I don't. I think it might be at half standard deviation above. I mean, we don't even know what's in it, probably. I don't know, and I don't care. My <laughs> teeth are proof that it works. But I would say this super goop. It's like four standard deviations above second place. Right. I don't it's, even know what second place would be, but yes. But it's yeah. astronomically better. It's like Sean White's old runs in the half pipe. You're like, well, these guys aren't even doing the same sport as him. Are you sure they're not paying you for this? They're don't you not. think they should be? <laughs> I mean, they're going to send you a nice gift package. I am so passionate about Super Goop. You know this about me, though, right? I'm going to tell Holly I don't after think I this knew chat. you loved it so much. I oh, mean, yeah, I, I love it. I ordered like five at a time. Whoa. And I okay. hide them because my family likes them. You're going to get it like a okay. I like I, the big, you know, they have the they, big they have ones a, with the pump. They have a family pack. Yeah, big that one's yeah. great. Daddy Long Legs. <laughs> Can we rename it? I mean, Can I have I, my own line there called Daddy Long Legs? You kept bringing up Colgate. Or what do you, Crest? Crest 3D White. Your Crest 3D White. And I do think there's a toothpaste that's four standard deviations And it's above. so funny, the toothpaste. I, really, I don't want to be disparaging about any brand. You should I for everybody. to toothpaste. Because I had Crest. to give an example of. Right. Yeah. And the, I couldn't not then think about the it somewhere else. Yeah. I don't want to say anything disparaging. It's the best toothpaste. <laughs> I may have just You're looked have over to, to the up. sink because it's like literally <laughs> inside the room to see what toothpaste what is. She uses there. fucking baking soda too. Arm and Hammer <laughs> brand. Stop <laughs> laughing. I, her teeth look pretty good. Thank you. That's because your skin's brown and no. your white teeth pop. <laughs> you know you're getting a bump from your Do you want? I mean, sorry to all other toothpaste, and this is gross for all of you guys using other toothpaste. <laughs> Every time I use other toothpaste, I get sometimes this weird stringy stuff in my mouth. <laughs> what? And also I get mouth ulcers. Oh it's the only toothpaste that does that because it has baking soda. Right. Anyway, give it a try. Report back. Maybe anyway. that'll be your next investment. <laughs> Sounds like it. They've been in the market for quite a while. Okay, well, this has been a blast. Thank you for this Yeah, session. this was fun. Oh, yeah, fun. it's so fun. I would have never in my wildest dreams when watching you play tennis think, I will one day probably chat with you about toothpaste <laughs> and super good. I did not think we'd go there either. Yeah. I appreciate the curveball. We take it all over. Is there any product you don't represent that you think is just stunning? What outfit are you wearing? Because you look really nice. She Oh, thank you. I'm actually. Is I, it the I'm, row? My God, you're so right. Shoes are the row. <laughs> I know the row. This is actually the row. I really dressed it down today. It's the but minimal I, mixed messages. Yeah. What are they calling it now? Quiet luxury. Um, quiet luxury. I actually hate that phrase. Yeah. I liked it because Kristen just told me I was accomplishing it in New York. Oh, she did. <laughs> yeah, with my um, Burberry sweatshirt. Yeah, I had my Burberry okay. sweatshirt. I love her so much. Yeah. That's actually the opposite because. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm now remembering she didn't say I had it. She was explaining her outfit. As oh, being okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes 
makes it way more sense. Because yeah, yeah. yours is so clearly Burberry, and the whole yeah. point is that you don't necessarily know the that's brand. Funny. It's quiet. Subtle, yeah, like no, subtle, yeah, subtle details. Subtle, you know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, All right. Well, we did it. A, this has been a blast. I hope you have a really fun <laughs> evening uh, away from your child in a driver. And I have hope you you'll get, get a drink. Yeah, Find your way to a drink. Six or seven drinks. Who knows? Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Be well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up is the fact check. I don't even care about facts. I just want to get in your pants. All right. Let's. Start. Okay. We're in. Happy birthday. We were gossiping. <laughs> I don't want to make anyone feel like they missed out. But believe it or not, there is even stuff that can't be said. That's here. true. We even have another layer Who of could gossip. believe it? Yeah. Because we're so open. Mm, sure. It's almost your birthday. Okay. Well, hold on. We have stuff to go over. <laughs> okay. We had eventful weekends. Okay. Right? Yeah. Let's start with a trip. A best girlfriend's trip to the desert. Yes, I took a trip with Callie. We did. Did a you drive night. in your? No, Callie drove. She did. What kind of car does she have? She has a hybrid, uh, electric hybrid Volvo. Okay, you should have taken. No, your she, car. It's a really nice. I know it's a. It's nice, a really nice it car. It is a nice car, but it is not a C forty three. Yeah, well, she wanted to drive, I think. Okay. Well, yeah, she's getting away from that baby. She wants to feel independent. Yeah. Yeah, Well, yeah. So, Callie was trying a first night out. Yeah. From her little one. Yeah. And so, we did a a one-night trip to Palm Springs. We stayed at a fun hotel. Mm -hmm. And on the way there, we went to the outlet mall. Which I cannot believe there's a Burberry outlet. I didn't think... Those brands had outlets. It's really rare. Yeah, the legacy, whatever we, what do we call it? Luxury, luxury brand. Luxury brands. LVN. Uh, <laughs> what are the other conglomerates? Oh, I'm, I'm impressed you knew that. Well, what one does Francois own? Does he own LVN? Francois Selma's Francois? Yeah. He owns that? Oh, he owns the whole group. Yeah. No. Yeah, and I think he's accumulated m- Wait, more. What's it than- called? Um, it's not LVN. YSL? No, no, that's Yves Saint Laurent. LVN fashion. I think there's another letter in it. Oh, maybe. See what you see. CNBC. Now it's getting confused because it thinks I'm talking about Louis Vuitton. Talking about Selma Hayek's husband? Yeah, Francois what? Kering. And what's Penalt, Penalt. LVMH. LVMH. Mm-hmm. There we go. LVMH, okay. Hermes, well, Louis Vuitton. A, t- a ton He owns Celine. Wait, it's him? I can't believe Well, yeah, he owns the biggest luxury brand conglomerate in the world. Well, hold your horses. Okay. He's the CEO of Kering. Kering? Yeah, I don't see his name. Kering's also a luxury. Okay, company. so he's not LVMH. Okay. So Kering owns Gucci, Ooh. Balenciaga. Oh. Bottega so. Veneta. Bottega, yes. YSL. Wow. Oh, yeah. Creed and Alexander McQueen. And I think Celine. But- Maybe. Won't make him look up know. more stuff. Okay. I can't um, pronounce any of these words. Neither. <laughs> okay, so he owns another. Wow. Gucci. Keurig. 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 There's How an do you N. spell it? K-E-R-I-N-G. Keurig. Celine is owned by LVMH. I just saw that. Oh. Okay. <laughs> 
Anywho, yes, luxury brands galore. <laughs> yeah, and what are what percentage would you say the savings are? Is it half price? Is it 10%? It is it 30? It depends on like these shoes. Mm-hmm. So I have I'm wearing new shoes. Yeah. They're Prada. There's a Prada outlet there. Wow. LVMH. LVMH. <laughs> um actually, I don't think it is. I'm gonna tell Francois to buy Prada. <laughs> Oh, he's got to buy Burberry so I can get a discount. Wow, you guys are that close. No, <laughs> but I did hang out with him in Paris, and he did offer. He said, "Any store you want to go to of mine, yeah, I'll give you a code, and you can get." It was a significant what? percentage off. Wait, yeah. then yeah, you need. So he that. needs to own Burberry so I can get the code. Well, for Gucci, Burberry. I have shoes. Ugh. Ugh, I could Gucci. have had so much savings. Yeah, I have yet to find an item at Gucci that's like calls my name yet. They don't have I much have like t- streetwear. Loafers. They? Loafers. Yeah, I don't like loafers. I like clunkier stuff. Yeah. I love a loafer. Okay. Yes, it has Burberry and a lot of it is like last season <clears throat> stuff. Oh, I wouldn't know. Or other seasons. Same. Other previous seasons. So it's it's discounted. And then sometimes there's additional savings. Look, it's all still expensive because it's expensive <laughs> brands. Yes, yes. But it is much cheaper than buying it <sighs> off. I wish they did this with cars and motorcycles because that's my thing. I wish there was an outlet mall and you can go like, oh, yeah, they're selling Ford Raptor R's for 45 grand over there. (laughs) But it's used car dealerships. That doesn't (laughs) do it for me. No. But that's kind of similar. It's it's not not similar. Because it's brand new. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. The used market's the used market. Yeah, you're right because there's a used market for clothes as well. Real, real. Real, real. That's right. Wow. You know so much. You knew kind of LVMH and you do know real, real. And I know Francois. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. This is kind of a ding, 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 because Maria Sharapova, that's who this is for. Oh, perfect. Is a fashionista. She was wearing- Head to toe. I think she was wearing all the row, or she was at least wearing- Head to row. (laughs) (laughs) She was adorned in head to row. Speaking of, that's why I'm I'm kind of like, is Francois going to give you a discount? Because like- you dated Ashley, and she doesn't. That's get probably more discounts. reason to not get a discount. Oh. Although, no, not all my previous. You're like, if Carrie owned the row, she we would have a discount. Yeah. And if yeah. Brie owned the row, we'd own a dis. We'd have a discount. We own a discount. We would own officially a discount. Wait, fuck. That's really true. Like, yeah. I wish Carrie or Brie owned the row. Yeah, that would be. I'd be so excited for either of them. They both deserve it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they'll start a fashion. Carrie'd be great at it. She's very entrepreneurial. Oh, yeah. She owns an insurance company and oh. she's on it. Yeah. She even hit me up. She's like, Ted Seegers, let me know what insurance needs oh, you. She that's got right great. on it. I'm like, I don't have any employees or anything. So, but that's great. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't need her services. I know it for sucks. insurance. I know. Ugh. I know. Anywho, you get to Palm Springs, you do some shopping. And are you guys shopping soulmates and that you both want to be in the store the exact same amount of time? Because I feel like inevitably some person wants to be there longer than another We're person. We're really good at it. You are. Yeah. Yeah. We've been doing it. I mean. That's what you do. 10,000 hours plus. Yeah. Together. That's your hobby. That's your um, me in the sand dunes. Man. I wish I had dated in the time of like the peak of my mall era. Mm. And I could just walk around with my boyfriend at the mall. My favorite thing was going to the 12 Oaks Mall with five boyfriends and cruising around and meeting a group of girls and then like eating at Burger King. Like I made out with a girl in the Burger King bathroom once at the mall. Wow. Yeah, it was so fun. But I mean more like I had a boyfriend then and then that's how we hung out. Like I guess what I'm saying is I wish I could go to the mall now on a date. With a partner. On a date. 
You should suggest that. It feels like they'd be well, like, you, you're that, a kid. That ship sailed. Yeah, and then now, like, what? We go into Hollister, and then he's waiting outside, like my dad. Oh, you think he would just wait in the car to pick you up? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's not much of a date, as much as a ride to the mall is what you're looking for. <laughs> Can we go on a date to the mall? And you don't have to come in, because I know you don't In fact, don't. Me. Don't come in. I'm just going to end up annoying you, because I'm going to be in there forever. <laughs> And you just sit in the car and enjoy, like break, watch <laughs> listen to music, watch something on your uh, iPhone. Yeah. yeah, you like to watch movies on your iPhone? Maybe that's how you start the whole conversation. <laughs> hey, Mark, just, do you like watching movies on your iPhone? <laughs> no, but you will. Perfect. That sounds great. Let's go to the mall on a day. <laughs> you drop me off. <laughs> I go shopping. I get so horny when I'm shopping. Oh my god! And then I come out and I'm yours. Seven hours later. Maybe I'll try it out. Okay. See, tell me how it goes. But nothing we want to say, chit chat. I feel like that ride. You, you, you want, you, I know I love you want goss. Yeah, I love, I love but, That's okay. There was none. Yeah, I don't think so. So, I mean, we actually talked, we talked a ton about family stuff because I'm, 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 I have a family thing happening right now. I don't know if I'm ready to talk about it. Okay. Well, I don't know. Is it, I'm more, I'm afraid to talk about it because I don't know if they want me talking about it. Totally fair. Yeah. Oh, but I do want to give you credit. Okay. <laughs> Fine, I'll say. Okay. Um, my grandfather's in the hospital. Yeah. He broke his hip and he had surgery and it's been a whole like It was really kind scary of, for everyone. Yeah. He hit his head and so there was blood everywhere and like the ambulance had to come and mm-hmm. and he's you know, he's really old yeah. and he's already like he has dementia mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of like any Day, you know, we're already like, I don't Prepped. know, any day. Yeah. And then this feels like, oh, it's This is the insane the cruelty of all this, right? So like Barton, you'll remember this story. Uh, listener advisory, what's yeah. coming next. Yeah. So you might want to skip up forward 30 seconds. I'll try to wrap it up in 30 yeah. seconds. So he's dying. He is in hospice. He is in a hospital bed in their room, my mom in his room. Yeah. And my mom's like making them breakfast in the kitchen. And, he, and she hears... Hon, hon, you're going to want to come in here. And up to that point, his testicles had swelled up so huge. She said they were like grapefruit. And somehow they just ruptured and there was blood spurting from the bed all the way up and hitting the ceiling. And you're like, well, what do we do? You're in hospice, so technically, you're not allowed to get any medical service at that point that prolongs your, you've already declared it. I know. Like, what should we do? They end up, same thing, you know, ambulance, huh? Well, that's, well, now we probably have to pay for it. I don't know about insurance because it's hospice. Well, we have to ask Carrie. You will have to ask her. Uh, <laughs> let's get her on the phone. <laughs> um, and then get rushed there and end up getting this procedure to f- stop the bleeding and blah, 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 blah. You know, in retrospect- yeah. She and I both thought out loud, like that might have been the, the that might have been the time to just let, because apparently bleeding out's kind of a peaceful way to go. Really? Yeah. From your balls into the ceiling, though. Well, that sure. You're so like stressful. you're seeing your virility right before you die. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, it's hitting the ceiling. No. That's impressive. Well, you can't. Like I know. That's I know. The thing. If it's it like was you somewhere can't, else, you maybe. think you no, you but you can't. You can't as a loved one see that happening and, and not just, stop it. You can't. I know. And you you think you're prepared and you're prepared. You've already said we're in hospice. Like we already know we're counting down the days until you die. But then this weird thing pops up, and then you're kind of like, well, now what? What's the game plan? As I've said in the past, 
The part that's the most uncomfortable for me, other than losing a loved one, is just the anxiety of what is the right course of action? What's the most responsible thing? What's the most humane thing? What's all these things? And you just, it's so unknown. You, I know. And the hits keep on coming. But we both concluded, because it got worse after that, it became less pleasant for him. He was rotating through these you know, positions and stuff. So we were both like, huh, that might have been, you know, yeah. in retrospect. So my dad called, or my dad sent me a text and mm -hmm. said, call me when you can, which, is, and we were about to start Flightless Bird. And I was like, oh God, okay. Mm. And, and of course that to me is bad news. Yep. And so when I called, I was expecting just he died. Then there's so many feelings of like guilt, so much guilt uh -huh. mixed in with all this because. Also what well, hard one I think for people to say out loud is like also sometimes relief. Well, exactly. So. Yeah. When the phone was ringing, I had already established, like, okay, he's calling to tell me that grandpa died. Yeah. So I'm, like, waiting for, for him to pick up. And all of a sudden, I got this, like, crazy rush of fear. What if he's calling me to tell me somebody else has died? Or like, what if her, something else yeah. really bad happened? And so when he said, hey, so grandpa fell down and I was— relieved sure that it wasn't your mom or your brother yes, yes. yes. or and, him and, with it, a bad yeah and i was yeah. like oh my god well there's naturally That's a priority upsetting. list but oh like it's just it's just so much to hold yeah right. now he's in all this pain and they can't give him too much pain medication I can't believe he, blood pressure. he had a surgery so then that was another piece my dad was like i guess he's gonna have surgery tomorrow and i, and I said what yeah. <laughs> how are in but but for them it was the same thing He's in so much pain. Right. I guess we got to do a surgery that will try to help that. And probably he's committing to never standing up again before he dies if he doesn't get the operation. But he right. has some hope of being able to walk. I guess. It's yeah. just that everyone is, yeah, forced to make these kind of crazy decisions. Yeah. So then I was like, well, he's not going to make it through the surgery. Uh-huh. And so yeah. then the next morning I'm waiting to hear that call. Mm, yeah. And I'm trying to, and I'm about to go to Palm Springs with Callie. And I'm also thinking, I'm like, oh, do I, what do I do? Do I come home right now? If I do come home right now, what does, what that does do? it do? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How's that helping anything? Ugh. And so then my mom called and said he had the surgery. He's, he's healthy as a horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he wasn't healthy as a horse. I guess <laughs> I kind of took it as that when she said it. Then turned then at like eight p.m. she she was like, he still isn't woken up from anesthesia, and he has a hundred and one degree fever. I was oh, like, okay, boy. this sounds really bad again. Like yeah. what? Yeah. But then now, I mean, he is awake and he's healthy okay. as a horse. They're saying. <laughs> I think the medical term they used healthy was as a horse. healthy as a equine. He's okay, but they're eventually like he'll come home and it will be hospice. I think. Or <laughs> this is a hack. This is an insurance hack. But yeah. this is weirdly how I got my father's palliative care paid for. Was he had in addition to the heart disease and the cancer that was all over his body, he also had gout bad enough that his feet were swelled up and he couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. So I got him in a longer-term physical rehab place yeah. where he had his own room and, yeah. like, this dream scenario he would have never had elsewhere yeah. with the lie that he's undergoing yes. some rehabilitation for his feet. So, that so in a weird way, 
this might end up being a way to buy yourself time where you're not committing to hospice, but you're getting some in-house care for the rehabilitation. Originally, my mom was first breaking down the surgery. She was, she was like, well, he won't be home for a while because after the surgery, he'll have to go to this rehab place. So that was part of the plan. Again, in my head, I was thinking, for what? Right. He's going to go to a rehab place? So he can jog. What? So he can jog again. What? What? <laughs> but then when I talked to them yesterday, I think they are scratching that plan. Okay. He doesn't, he can't. Like, he doesn't know. He, he can't, can't speak English anymore. The, oh, he can't. No, he only speaks Malayalam. He only knows my grandmother, really. Like, uh -huh. it's, and he just screams. It's like, it's not a good situation. He's not to be out in a different environment other than his own. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, mm. all to say, it's been a kind of emotional couple days and yeah. weekend. Um, but then you did something very sweet. You sent my mom texted me and said that you sent them flowers, my mom yeah. flowers, yeah. which was really kind. Did she like that I called her Nermi? Did she, didn't she mention, mention that? that part? Uh, <laughs> well, it's funny. Your dad did though <laughs> angrily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He that's my it. name. That's my name for no, you. Keep her name Nimi. out of your mouth. You, you said it wrong, and now that's your name. Oh, mine is Nermi. Yeah. So his is Nimi. Oh, great. So he and I both have a lane. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. There's no overlap. Uh -huh. Um. Yeah. Well, I I first I needed their address. I wondered. I so I, I hit Neil you, up. Oh. Um. But then I was like using my worst case uh, estimate for what Neil might be so busy and when will he get back to me and I want to send these flowers. So then I just did a Google search. You did. And I got their address and then, <laughs> you know, so, so then I just, I wanted to get them there Saturday, which that was not so nice. possible. So I put in a rush order and everything, but it ended up being Sunday. But regardless, I then wrote Neil back because I didn't want, I wanted to alleviate him. So then I was just like, Hopefully it's this because I committed to what I found on the yeah. internet. And then to my uh, relief, he said, yeah, that's the right address. That was very sweet. Well, I was thinking about how sad you were. And um, and then I thought, well, that's Nermi's dad. She's the yeah. daughter. She's, you know, probably however much more sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's and you can't do anything. You can't do no. anything. All you can do is let people know, like, hey, I see what you're going through yeah. in life, and I'm sorry that's what's happening. Well, it was the right thing because I think it really— It gave her a little spring in her step? Yeah, I oh, think it made her feel Best very... money I've spent in a year, then. She want to take me to Lubby's oh, as a thank you? Even Lubies? more. Yeah, Lubies or Lubricants? <laughs> <laughs> My family's not good at that. Receiving— No, we're not good at—we're just not good at emotions— well, by the way, that crossed my mind. Like, is this something she would prefer not like, to receive? Like, is this going to break her or something? Not even break, just like, mm. again, I only know what I know. Yeah. Where I'm from, anyone would like to know someone was thinking about you. But I don't know if she, I, there was, you know, 6% of my brain that was like, she might feel like her uh, privacy has been invaded, oh. that it's none of my business, mm -hmm. or that now she's self-conscious of this thing that's private. She's going, I, I don't, those are all options. Sure. And you're just- you're trying to make a calculated gamble that it's the right thing. I yes. Yeah. Well, it was. Oh, that's good. Even though it's not conventional. I think that's why it, it had such an impact because oh. people don't do that. Like no one else is doing that. No one else is. I didn't do it. Well, well, that's why I'm affected. You're all suffering, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's not like her sister's going to do it to her. Yeah. Her mom's not going to do it to her. It's just whatever. Like whoever's out of the Padman circle, that still I know cares it's about just her. Really. Really nice. I and I was, I bet a lot of people struggle with this. Like, I don't really know what to do. I don't know if I need to go. Right. 
I'm already going home in a couple weeks. Yeah, it seems a little crazy to go. Unless I know, but I guess it's for it would be for me. Right. But then what am I getting? Yeah. <sighs> that's hard. It is. You'll be able to go see him as he's recovering in a couple weeks. Well, that's my hope. Yeah. But like and you will. things take a, what if they take a crazy turn? I again, yeah, I guess it's more for me. Like that's how right. will you I just feel? decide what you're gonna wanna live with and yeah. you decide whether that's gonna haunt you or not. And I I don't know why it would given you're gonna go see him in a couple weeks. Well, it's only gonna haunt me if he dies. Yeah. But even at that point, he won't he won't know. I know. So it's just whatever weight you decide to put on yourself I know. about it. I'm like, do I? Like, feel it's not like I you have a great, have you don't have a not. great longing to see him right now, do you? I have a, I have a confusing feeling. There is a sense of familial piety, like this is what you're supposed to do. I guess a little bit of that, but it's, it's actually more. I mean, we're, we were so close. Yeah, yeah. That if I'm there, like he'll, he'll know. He'll feel. Yeah. Sure. And I do want him to have that. And he's gonna. Anyway, anyway, so that's that. Uh, but what about your weekend? Wait, hold on. You, well, my life has ended because we finished couples therapy. I know. So life's over. But mm-hmm. luckily, Jed again and then Jackie independently both said you need to watch uh, Love Has Won. Have you heard of this, Doc? Elizabeth and Andy have talked about it. Yeah, it's wild. It's a cult thing too, it's right? It's a cult, Doc, okay. about Mother God. Right. Yeah, and it's it is so out there already. It's pretty wild. Really? Yeah, we're we're hooked. I love a you know me and cult docs. Yes. I've yet to see a cult doc. I didn't. I wasn't grateful. I I spent the time on. Okay. Even when they're not great, I they love. Are so I great. love them. Yeah. I agree. Um, I started the curse. Have you started that? Yeah, I've started that one. Okay. What's that? It's Nathan Fielder. Nathan Fielder. Oh, right. The, the, um, the, Emma Stone. The trailers look incredible. Yes. It's also so bizarre. I, I didn't, I haven't finished the first episode, so no spoilers. It's really fascinating. Is it reality or scripted? It's scripted, but it's it's shot. It's like satire about reality show, like. Kind of, and white saviors. Mm, it's really, yeah. it's good. I think. I mean, I, I'm not that far in. Recommend. Okay, I'm on it. All right, well, this is for Maria. Great style. I'm going to give you a couple more. Oh, I, I, I didn't do any updates. One I'm is sorry, I went to Sphere on Friday. Huge update. With, with Eric, Molly, Jen, and Larry trailing. Oh, fun. Oh, that's lovely. Larry and Jen, boy, I, what a special couple. Nice. Yeah, I feel so lucky to be spending time with them now. Yeah. Um, it was extraordinary. That place is extraordinary. It's Tell me everything. Well, I just was thinking, like, what's cool about it is it's not something you would go to once. The programming inside is going to change every time there's a concert there. Right. And the programming is so interesting and exciting. Like, I'll want to keep going. Wow. It's Wild. There's points where like they make the whole 
you're sitting where you'd be sitting if there was no sphere and it's all of Vegas around you, but it's really Vegas and there's cars moving. So you you feel like you're completely outside. Oh my God. In a parking lot watching you two play for a minute. Whoa. And then you're in the desert and you're in like the prettiest part of the Vegas desert and it's everywhere. And you're like, oh, it's, and it's bright all of a sudden. I was thinking if you're on drugs, that's a, probably a rough part of it. Yeah. Where it's like you're jamming to you two and it's dark and trippy. And then all of a sudden you're, it's like, high noon in the desert you're probably like oh fuck i'm supposed to be asleep oh wow i don't know also there was a couple on, clearly on mandy mdma okay that's what jethro calls it in england they call it mandy instead they of do? molly and it makes more sense mandy mdma oh, that's amazing yeah this couple was on hundreds of hits of mandy i guess they were standing the entire show making out oh for two hours for i don't know how they didn't fuck like i'm blown away oh. they didn't the clothes didn't come off they were passionately standing and making out the oh whole God. time. But is it unsettling? No, I loved it. No, not them. Oh, the, oh. the experience. No, no. There were some some more, I guess, aggressive kind of poppy type things that were neon-y. Okay. Those weren't my favorite ones. But then there was just like at the end, there was this incredible, you were underwater. Oh. The illusions they can create because it's, completely a dome they make it look dead square like all of a sudden now you're in a rectangled room oh. and the dimensions they've got it all worked out i don't know how everywhere you sit the illusions working work because clearly the letters have to be different shapes mm -hmm. and uh, oh and complying God. with that point of view so the math of it is like mind-boggling that they can make and then of course they can do it where you're looking up to almost infinity and you can't tell that it's not oh. going to infinity did you feel nauseous at all? No. Did anyone? No. And like Jen and Kristen were both nervous it was going to be too much stimulation yeah. for them, but it wasn't. Everyone was cool. Oh, fuck. You want me to name drop? Oh, sure. Well, re remember, did you end up watching the Models Doc? Yeah, loved. Yeah. And do you remember who I said my favorite was? No. There was such a clear favorite for me. Chrissy Turlington? Yep. Yeah, she's great. We went down to the floor for the last third of it. I was dancing right next to her the whole time. Wow, that's exciting. She was there. Fun. Yeah. Great dancer. Oh, great. She was living up to the what you wanted her to be from the doc. You Okay, great. It was great. Fun. There's people on the floor fucking out of their mind. Wow. And could anyone just go down to the floor or you had passengers? I don't know how that worked. We oh. had some help okay. from the folks at the Sphere. Okay. They were very, very nice and helpful to us. That's nice. Yes, we were very spoiled. I wonder who else is going to play there. I know. I can't wait to go back. It's oh. so cool. It's And the fact that there's 18,000 people in there is crazy. That's How like do you think my epilepsy Center. would have held up? I think it would have been fine. Okay. I do. I do. They must be semi-conscious of the strobingness. But there were some practical strobing as at any concert. Yeah. There were some light strobes at some point. Yeah. And then... Yeah, it was great. It would have worked out great for, for me as all my favorite songs happen to be at the end. And it was while we were on the floor for dancing and oh, stuff. Great. And it was great. It was so much fun. Um, and then, that's not even the highlight of the musical weekend. Great. So then last night was Lily's birthday party yes, at karaoke. Yes, I missed it, yeah. And they should rename karaoke to Taylor Swift. That's it. <gasps> because it was a 14-year-old's birthday party. So there was like, I don't know, a dozen or 15 Taylor Swift teenage along. girls. And every single song that was played was... T Swift. Did you sing? No. I wanted to. Yeah. And I was saying, this is not your time. 
Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Of course, first song is Lily singing Taylor Swift. Uh-huh. And I start reflecting on the fact that I met her when she was a seven-year-old little I girl. That's crazy. And then She's I'm 14. crying. Oh, wow. Okay. Crying. First song, crying. Taylor Swift. Seeing how excited these girls are again about it. It was eras all over again. Yes. And uh, Lincoln and Dahlia sang a Taylor Swift song. Oh. So, of course, now I'm crying about that. Oh, wow. And then Delta and Kristen sang oh. a Frozen song. Oh, sweet. And you cried then. Of course. Because I'm like, I'm just so happy for Kristen that she got to sing that thing with her little girl. Yeah. What could be sweeter? So special. I, I did not want to go. I don't want to go to a teenage birthday party in Koreatown on a Sunday night at 6 p.m. to do karaoke. Yeah. And by God, immediately I was having a great time. Great. And it was so fun and heartwarming. Great. Great weekend <laughs> for you. Great weekend. Really great really weekend. Really great station. Okay, Maria. Maria. I only have one fact. Okay, great. But it is a really important one. It's a whopper. It's the one that everyone in Los Angeles can't stop talking about, including us, which is why do we still have daylight savings <sighs> when we all voted yes. years ago yes, to get like rid of it? Four years ago now? Now, this is from NBC San Diego. Oh.com. Why are we still changing our clocks for daylight saving time in the U.S.? Back in March 2022, the U.S. Senate unanimously passed the Sunshine Protection Act that would have made daylight savings time permanent starting in November 2023, which means Americans would stop switching their clocks back or forward twice a year. The bill was stalled in the House, and it expired. Oh, fuck. However, Senator Rubio reintroduced the Sunshine Protection Act of 2023 on March 2nd to make daylight savings time permanent across the nation. Okay, didn't Californians vote to remove daylight savings time in 2020? Yes, Californians did. So why are we still changing our clocks then? Prop 7, 2018. That prop passed by nearly 60% of the vote, giving the California legislator the ability to change daylight savings time. So that's the weird trick. We passed it, but all it did was give exactly. the legislator the ability to change it. Exactly. That's what it says. Prop 7 didn't actually change daylight savings time. It just gave the state legislator the ability to actually change it if they earn a two-thirds vote on it and if the federal government already allows it. Oh, fuck. It's dependent on the federal government? Yep. Oh, geez. Why is Arizona able to just do it? They, you know, Arizona hasn't I had know. it for decades. <sighs> I don't get it. Yeah. I hate it. It is dark at 4.15. Yeah. I will say, though, I've been enjoying, because I wake up kind of early to meditate, and I really appreciate if there's some sunlight I can stare You're at. You're my enemy. I know. I mean, I I don't want it. Yeah. But I, I have been finding the silver lining That's of it, nice. which is when I meditate, it's not dark out. Oof. Boy, do I hate it. Mm. Anyway, that's the fact that's the fact. And it's really... Tune in for the fact check. <laughs> the fact check. I'm glad you read that. So yeah. now, now my expectations will be in the toilet where they should have been for the last three years. Exactly. We were living on hope and it was wrong. Yeah, entirely. Well, we have one more week of regular episodes and then we have some fun end of year stuff yeah. coming your way. Making it fun at the end of the year. And then we have a week off and then we're back in Jan. For a whole new... A whole new year. A whole new year. With some resolutions. Yes. Some commitments, some new commitments, some um, some reflecting on the old ones. Yeah, we need to write down what, or we guess we could just listen 
we could to go what back. we said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder if we achieved any. Actually, that's kind of fun. Maybe we should play it. Okay. On our first episode okay. back. Oh my god. What? Let's go out with this. The first one's gonna make you jealous. Oh man. But I need you to rest assured that you'll be taken care of. Okay. Okay. Listening to at last man, I, I'm I'm so glad we we got a chance to chop it up. I'ma hit you up when I'm back. Oh, Jack. <laughs> That's incredible. I, mean, I can't tell you how smiley I was when I got that. Now here's part oh, two. Oh my here's part god. Two. Exactly what I'd hope someone with that superpower would do, which is just like let it rip all the time about nothing. Just send people messages. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Love it. Oh. oh, John. Oh, John. He oh, changed our lives. He really did. He's life. He's a life-changing person. Oh, That's my God. True. All right. Well, I love all you. All right. Love you. 